Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. Matthew Zachary is my guest today. Matthew's got an interesting story. He's a fun guest. He was a cancer survivor at the age of 21, diagnosed with a rare form of brain cancer. And he talks about that a little bit today. But he realized in going through that experience, this is now 25 plus years ago, in going through that experience, there was a lot of conversations happening about youth cancer, when kids get cancer, and there was a lot happening with geriatric cancer, but there weren't a lot of people addressing what happens when you get cancer in your 20s, in your 30s, as a young adult. What does that do to you? What does that feel like? And he wanted to form community around that. So he founded the nonprofit Stupid Cancer in 2007 and also hosted a show for them, The Stupid Cancer Show. And then he stepped down as CEO of Stupid Cancer last year and went on to form Offscript Media, which is a new podcasting company that is really diving into the patient advocacy space. He hosts Out of Patients, which is a podcast just about raw, honest conversations around healthcare. He also hosts the show, The Nord Pod, which is the National Organization of Rare Disorders. And they have some other shows too, Brand New Weed, which looks at the issues around marijuana, and Am I Dying? And you'll hear in this interview, he has big plans for where to take off script media and sort of how to grow that conversation. And I talk about it a little bit here, and I've talked about it a little bit on the show before, but we've had our own struggles in my family with cancer. My wife went through thyroid cancer treatment last year. Thankfully, we are on the other side of it, and you know everybody's happy and healthy. But it definitely gives you a whole different perspective on everything and also just gives you a sense of how messy the healthcare system is in this country. It's very hard to judge the validity of the information you're being given, what it's going to cost for that treatment. Just all of it is... Uh, it's a big black hole that's very easy to get sucked into. And unfortunately, it's not something that you can be proactive about. You don't anticipate getting a diagnosis like cancer or any disease for that matter. You don't expect it. You expect to live healthy and all of a sudden you get news like that and you're thrust into this maze of trying to navigate different doctors, different billing systems, all these bills that are arriving. You get a bill for the doctor itself, a bill for the facilities, a bill for, you know, the medicine. There's just all these different bills that keep coming and they're very hard to make sense of. So Matthew's goal is to try to have just some honest, open conversations around the topics of healthcare and hopefully get people the information that they need and do it in a way that speaks specifically to people going through these experiences right now. Obviously, podcasting is just exploding right now. And here I am with a show, <laughs> like a lot of people, just trying to, you know, get people to listen, get people to pay attention. And uh, I can understand some of the challenges that Matthew's going through. But I also was eager just to sort of compare notes on podcasting in general and sponsorships and making it all work. So a lot of interesting stuff in here, healthcare, podcasting, growing a business, starting your own business. It's a fun talk. I hope you'll come away with it with, uh, with some new knowledge. Offscript Media's podcasts, Out of Patience, NordPod, 
Brave New Weed, and Am I Dying are available wherever you listen to podcasts. So go check those out. Here it is, my interview with Matthew Zachary. I want to start by just asking you how this quarantine period has been for you the last, you know, six, seven months. It's ironically been fabulous for me, but uh-huh. only for me. It's okay. been devastating for my kids, my wife, my friends, my parents, my family. And it's been good for me because I've been able to build an entire media company in quarantine at a separate office in Manhattan yep. and separate myself in a way where the isolation is horrible, but I feel productive in being able to do certain things. And as much as people have crazy Zoom fatigue, I'm okay with it because my Zooms are helping me create something new. Right. But that is contrapuntal to what it's like to help support my family, my poor wife, and what she's been dealing with, the brunt of the uh, of the lion's share of managing my 10-year-old twins in fifth grade with the... Um, I don't know, how shall we say, the the um, unpreparedness of the New York <laughs> City Board of Education system yeah. to deal with 1.1 million children. Right. I'll be kind <laughs> in that comment. <laughs> oh, no, I won't. It's a dumpster fire and it's killing us. So there's been, you know, I have mixed emotions about how I've been able to be successful individually as myself building this new business while at the same time you know the guilt of not being there all the time but there's so much i can only do when you know working mom and growing kids and managing you know their fears and anxieties yeah. so that was a long answer to a short question no it, that that's fine I, you said you're quarantining in the office like are you literally like sleeping in the office and stuff no i'm i drive in to gotcha. manhattan okay. every day and i've been driving in every day yeah, I'm here alone all day, every day, except for the days that my co-founder comes in and wears a mask while he's here. So, yes, I've been literally alone in wow. this little tiny office in Manhattan, and I don't really interact with anybody. I'm in the deli downstairs. You wear your mask. You socially distance at the right. register. The guys at the car park are – you just park your car. They take your keys. You go. You come back. And outside of normal – Social activities, I do see my parents. That was a choice we made because they'd rather see their family. Yep. And it's it's been very isolating for me through the lens of just being alone in an office all day, every day for the last eight months. Right. And, and I think I heard on one of your shows, you actually had COVID at some point, right? I did. I tested positive for antibodies. Okay. Because one might ask, like, why would you do that? And this was in really like early March. The pediatricians called my wife and I and said, we're testing kids just to rule out X, Y, and Z before there was data about, you know, kids kind of just carry it and don't get it. Right. And while we were there, they're like, oh, we'll do you too, mom and dad. And we did the blood test and the stick swab thing in your nose. And we came back negative for COVID, but I came back positive for antibodies, which huh. was really weird. Yeah. So I know a lot of doctors and infectious disease specialists and virologists just through my my career. Sure. And they're, they were like, take the same test again, just to whatever. Cause that's when false positives right. were rampant. Tested positive again. Then I went for a plasma donation where they test you twice before and after. And I had it then I got a fifth test for shits and giggles with my 
uh, my primary doc, because he was enrolling in a study that's tracking antibody virus shedding. Right. If you have antibodies, they'll know if you're losing them by taking the same uh, blood test like six weeks later. So I have 58. I don't know what the 58 somethings right. of antibodies. Something on the scale, whether that, yeah, is that, is that a lot or a little? Who knows? Uh, and I may have more or less than 58 the next time I take the test. So, yeah, I had COVID. Wow. And, you know, I, I work in, I'm not a scientist, but I work in data and I work in evidence and I, I'm in cancer research and I, I look at math and statistics and, you know, 9 million global diagnoses and only three reported relapses. Pretty safe to say you're not going to get it or kill anybody. Yeah. So I'm not going around without a mask. I'm doing my thing, but not that I feel immune, but I, you don't want to walk around and be that we're in New York. Right. So not wearing a mask, they'll beat you, right. you know, versus other States. We're like, Oh, look, you're wearing a mask. They beat the guys with the mask right. in other States. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, uh, but yeah, the, the fact that I had it and it's ridiculous. I, I developed a really weird side effect that's coming out now. Like they're calling it late COVID or long COVID. Uh -huh. And I've developed a side effect called phantosmia, which is when you start to smell odors that aren't there. Really? What do you, what kind of, what, what are you smelling? I smell cigarette smoke huh. when there's no smoke. I just smell carcinogens That's and phantosmia is like a late onset, like geriatric condition when your brain starts to rot. Huh. So I don't think I have that, <laughs> but I, <hope> not. <laughs> I, I certainly hope not. I don't feel any different, but uh, yeah. So uh, how symptoms of COVID are you lose taste, you lose smell. This is a variant of what they're thinking is now a long-term late effect of having had it. That's wild. And and you, as far as you know, it was asymptomatic, it sounds like. Like, if you had it, it wasn't something that registered with you as having it. It was just sort of you had these antibodies now. Yeah, I mean, I had – this is the weird part where, like, all the conjecture flies out. I had an upper respiratory infection in mid-February. Mm. I took the five-day Z-Pack. And it went away. Yeah. No fever, no cough, nothing wrong. I get these maybe once a year. The antibiotic worked and I was perfectly fine. They're like, maybe that's a version of COVID. No, no. Antibiotics don't cure COVID. Right. It doesn't work that way. So we don't think that was it. There's no like, oh, maybe that was my version of COVID. No, that doesn't exist. That's not science. That's yeah. not how it works. So I'm not conflating or comporting the fact that I had an upper respiratory infection in February with I somehow contracted coronavirus maybe on the subway before they locked down the city. I have right. no idea. Yeah. And I guess they're saying now it was with us a lot longer than we ever knew. I mean, there are cases perhaps as early as January that, you know, we're going around kind of undetected, it sounds like. Well, everyone focused on like the, the Chinese cruise ships and stuff on the West Coast, but right. it came over here from Europe. Right. New York got the Europe COVID, which also came from China, but Chinese people in Europe brought the European COVID people to New York. Right. So it, it could be different. I have no idea. All I know is that it's it's unlike any other time that I can imagine. We'll pull through this. I always channel like Jeff Goldblum and Jurassic Park, life finds a way, right, right. you know, and, and one day we'll be like, oh, remember that day where, you know, it was like nine years in one day and we didn't do anything. And my concern is I'm very lucky my kids are 10 and not infants or three, four, five pre-K. Right. Our friends, and I think this is really a grade school conversation, is what is going to be the impact on kids 
like third grade and under right. to not have the nurturing culture of growth. Yeah. And there's no therapy in the world that's going to solve for this in 10 years. Yeah. Well, we don't know. We have no idea, you know, what these kids are going to look like. It's, it's, I mean, I'm going, I've got a seven-year-old who's in second grade and yeah, just trying to figure that out every day is, uh, yeah, interesting times. Um, I want to, you know, you, you mentioned sort of this, uh, this new media organization that you've started, and, and I certainly want to get there, but I kind of want to go back and just sort of understand your backstory and your history. Do you mind just sort of taking me back on that journey of sort of, you know, how, how you came to found Stupid Cancer originally back in 2007 and, you know, sort of your own path through, through surviving cancer? Yeah, there's, there's roughly three chapters in the Tolstoyan novel I will never write. <laughs> yeah. But the first one is that I was uh, born and raised in New York, a trained concert pianist and film composer, and I went to undergraduate to be the next Jerry Goldsmith or John Williams. And along the way, about six months before graduating and going to to USC, I lost the ability to play piano with my left hand because all fine motor coordination just left my brain. Hmm. And I went misdiagnosed for six months until they realized, oh, there's something really wrong with Matt when I had a seizure. Wow. And... Long story short, brain cancer, six months to live, never seen this before, one in two million cases for the year. Wow. You know, spoiler, lived, don't know how, and wound up falling back on plan B, which was I fixed Macintosh computers in the 1990s. (laughs) A very niche skill. This was before Steve Jobs was back and all this. Yeah, they were kind of, Apple was on the back burner back then. This, this was, was Gil Emilio. Yeah, right. Yeah, this is Bill Gates appearing and getting booed <laughs> when he gave Apple $100,000, million or whatever. Yeah, right. I fixed centrises and quadras and performas and all these. That was my – so I wound up being the IT guy at all these ad agencies fixing their Macintoshes. I built a consultancy and spent 10 years moving up the ranks to become you know Draper Richards guy. Yeah. So that's – kind of chapter two but along the way i met other cancer survivors who were also diagnosed in their 20s and i had gone seven years feeling alone and those were the folks that said oh my god this guy's got some something and you should be an advocate matt and i said what the hell's an advocate right so i got kind of drafted you know plucked out of the ether of my day job in in agency and invited to join something nascent coming out of Livestrong and it's at the time which is all about cancer in Gen Xers. And they're not saying it's better or worse than kids and old people, but cancer when you're under 40 is very different than here's why. And I really gravitated to that because that was me. Right. This was around 10 years of my somehow still being here. And I learned from these folks that what happened to me 10 years ago still happens today and there's been no change. And that's yeah. all I need to hear. Like, sign me up. What do I do? And I realized that I have no nonprofit experience, so I'll start a nonprofit. Why not? <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> Famous last words. Yeah. But I realized that I come from marketing and advertising. I'm not a researcher. I'm not a policy person. I'm not a data scientist. And I'm not a nonprofit person, but I felt like I needed to create a movement with all of these incredible people who were nurturing me. So Stupid Cancer became the brand and the community that I wished I had had in 1996. And, you know, what brings us to today is that it all started with an Internet radio show. 
one of my earliest mentors ran the only terrestrial AM radio cancer show at the time. Uh-huh. And her company was offered the chance to do an internet radio. It's not like Homer Simpson. It's on the <laughs> internet now. It's the computers of the internet. It was like, what is this thing with right. 56K dial up and DVDs and macromedia flash and crazy crap? If I'm channeling my inner geek with you. But I was the first radio shock jock podcast guy we don't call it podcast back then podcast sure yeah yeah um like when adam curry was on the radio right that was when i started in started the stupid cancer show i I was in college radio i love npr i just all right i'll I'll see what happens and because you're you didn't know you first but i was the only radio in cancer yeah so i was able to book shows and it was a shiny object and we got tons of funding and eventually over 450 episodes 14 years 3,000 interviews and four and a half million listens it became a phenomenon right so i'm doing what i do today as a media broadcaster with my new company because i miss doing that when i stepped down from the nonprofit space and, and i just believe in the power of audio as opposed to not oppositionally to just video and webinars and zoom and websites and print collateral but there's a lost art to conversation on the radio that doesn't really push through in healthcare and advocacy and education that i'm trying to pioneer right well and i I wanted to ask you about that too because i found i've only been doing this podcast since may like i kind of started it as a reaction to covid but I've, i've been really sort of pleasantly surprised with just how how engaging people are willing to be with me and sort of how, how much they're willing to open up about any aspect of their life. And I wonder sort of, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. Like, what is it about the audio format that is different from, you know, video or, or you know, other ways of communicating? Why, why is audio so intimate? So let's go back to the golden age of radio, FDR, the yep. 1920s. Everyone sure. had a Victorinox or a Victorinox. I thought the, the old brand name was in their living room. Yep. One of my favorite movies of all time is Woody Allen's Radio Days. I encourage oh, anyone yeah, sure. to watch it. And people used to gather around and just listen. And there's a lost art of listening. And when podcasts started to make a comeback, it was all very entertainment and transactional and Uh, disposable media you're never going to listen to that again and that's fine or i learned something it's the bill nye show or it's the dax shepherd show or it's the policy show or the finance show that's fine it's a different psychological sensory integration of mass media consumption you know we we, i think the expression is you know when you're doing zoom you got to lean in and sit on your ass and do nothing can't move around you make everyone nauseous right you know but when you're listening you could listen anywhere. Right. And this metaphor of radio in your pocket on demand is resurging just the radio days of FDR. And if you start to think about podcasting as just that, radio, different radio, but 2020 radio, it puts it into perspective of how it's not better or worse. It's different with a different intention and purpose. And if you're just hearing someone's voice, everything else lives in your thoughts and how that manifests in mm. your brain. You're not getting stimulated with video right. and visuals and staring at 70 people and reading blogs and looking at multiple news channels. It's one sense. That's the difference. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because that as that one sense is engaged, as you say, you're often doing you know, 10 other things. Like I'll, I'll have a podcast on if I'm doing the dishes or folding laundry or, you know, driving on an airplane, whatever, you know, like it's, uh, 
background noise to an extent. You know, you're doing other things, but it, there is a different level of focus. I think you're right. But I guess my, my, my question, too, was just sort of what is it that gets people to open up too? why? Why do people bear their souls to you and talk talk to you about, you know, their their medical journeys and sort of what they've gone through? What 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 do you think is different about this space? I mean, for many people, it can be therapeutic. Yeah, that's true. You know, being able to tell your story like anything in oral history is the greatest gift of evolution. I mean, I think Carl Sagan said that or someone said that the fact that we are able to pass down stories. Right. Defines us from monkeys. Yeah. Right. Forget the opposable thumb stuff, like I mean, burying our dead. That, those are two things. <laughs> but we have, or we have language. Right. And language is verbal. I mean, it can be visual, but language is verbal. And oral history is what has turned civilization into society. Mm. So speaking and sharing and learning is. I think in, in indicative instinctive in our DNA, we want to be able to express ourselves somehow and with intent and purpose, everyone has a story to tell right. and everyone's story has a unique value. Fucking Hitler, right? Horrible man. Yeah. Incredible story. You got to go either way with that one. You know, it's <laughs> pick, pick your swing left to swing right on that. But I believe in the power of storytelling as just anthropologic narrative for our species. And when bad things happen to good people, it's important for people to be able to have access to those stories. Yeah. Well, and, and that's a question I have for you, too, is just sort of thinking about, you know, who your audience is and sort of like I, I, I was really happy. I started listening to some of your shows and feeling really engaged in the content. And it's things that, you know, even though like I haven't been sick myself, my, my wife uh, went through thyroid cancer last year and, you know, survived that and we're on the other side of it. But, you know, just sort of going through that experience, like there, there was a kinship that I felt with a lot of your guests, but at the same time, I feel like they're necessary conversations for everybody to hear, but it's often, these aren't things that you look at proactively, I guess, right? Like people, people tend to only talk about medical things when something goes wrong in their own life, right? My interview style has evolved over the last 15 or 16 years. And I don't want to be cookie cutter. I don't want to be formulaic. I like the idea of my listeners being flies on the wall. Yep. And kind of like you just stumbled into two people that have known each other for 20 years that are just having a, like a baseline kitchen table conversation amongst friends. Right. You know, there could be hits and bullets and points to make and specific targeted questions. And you know what the audience wants to hear. I don't want to be for everyone. And I don't need to be for everyone. If you want that kind of show, talk to that kind of person. There's something I call nodding head syndrome that you can only get when listening to something. When someone says something that's in your head that you wish you could say, you're hooked. They're saying what I'm thinking. Mm. And I just did a random show with my friend from high school. It was a, just a throwaway. We were so angry about COVID and our kids in school. I just turned on the mic and I said, let's bitch for 30 minutes. And that was the show. Yeah. And I had like 5,000 people listen to the show. Like, <laughs> I had no goal, no right. intention. It's like right. no one knew who she was. I didn't even introduce her, you know, and then I, then I went back and reintroduced her. But like they just were like, here are two normal people bitching about all the shit that's happening. And I wish I was part of that. I wish I was at the table with them. Yeah. Well, it goes back to what you're saying too, about sort of conversation. And and I do feel like that is sort of missing right now that we have become so text dependent and, you know, so email dependent and all that 
communication happens very quickly and almost incidentally now, and there's not as much space anymore for just long form, you know, that kind of sitting around the campfire <laughs> that, you know, thinking back to evolution and stuff like that, that storytelling art is gone. And and there is something beautiful about just hearing two people have a conversation and be like, oh, yeah, we know how to do that. <laughs> we used to do that all the time as humans. There's a new podcast called Smartless with uh, Will Arnett, Jason Bateman, and oh god, Sean Hayes from oh, Will sure. and Grace. Yep. And yeah, they're like Hollywood guys and whatever. But the truth is, they're actual friends in real life, and you're eavesdropping in on their own conversations, like they're talking amongst friends. And it you, you dropped. I don't feel like oh, I know them from that movie. I'm like these are guys just bitching about their kids and their wife and right. and their friends. And and the Adam Sandler was on today talking about what it's like to get fat, you know, during COVID, right? That was me too. Yeah. The care was Adam Sandler. So there's a certain <laughs> cadence and psychology to how conversations are had, how audio dialogue is recorded and presented. And it shouldn't be one size fits all. It should be, you have to be yourself. And if you like what you hear, don't change the channel. Right. Well, so I want to ask you more too about the mission uh, behind Offscript Media and sort of all these conversations around healthcare. And it's it's kind of a global question, I guess. But like, why is why does healthcare need so much decoding now? Why is it so complicated to go to the doctor and and you know get a procedure done and figure out what it costs for that procedure? So it's really easy to say that our healthcare system in America is broken, but the sad conspiracy that is not a conspiracy is that it is not broken. It is working exactly the way it was designed to, mm. with no intent to actually help people unless there's a profit. Okay. And that is the truth. And I'm not some lefty, righty conspiracy person. That is how it is designed. Kaiser Permanente, Richard Nixon, and some other crazy people built this in the 1970s. And that's when uh, when, when um, HMO started. You know, I, depending on where you are on your Michael Moore schedule in his film, <laughs> in his film Sicko, yeah. he talked about that one aspect. You could ignore the rest of the film, but he really dove into the origins of the business of healthcare in America in the 1970s. So I digress, but I'll put it this way. Getting sick is a supply only economy. Yeah. No yeah. one wants it. There's no demand to get sick. When you get sick, cancer, diabetes, whatever the hell it is, lupus, fibromyalgia, you enter a almost a retail shopping experience that you didn't know you wanted to have. Yeah. Um, and no one wants to be in that store. And no one has any idea where the coupons are or on what aisles the toilet paper. And there's no Abe Simpson in a blue vest to greet you and say, welcome to shit happens. Right. So putting it that way, as as dramatically as that sounds, frames the fact that healthcare is not designed to help you figure shit out because there's no demand and supply just wants to compete for your business. So the idea or the notion of, you know, we talk about access to care, it's really access to choice and who is preventing you or encouraging you to know what decisions are right for you. And beneath that are nine sedimentary layers of bullshit. Right. 
Well, and I guess that's where it gets confusing for me is like, you know, I'm, I'm car shopping right now and I'm looking at, you know, a, a Honda CRV and a Toyota RAV4. And I can kind of look at like, okay, here's the different features. This one is $2,000 more, but I get, you know, Apple CarPlay with it. This one has heated seats, though. Maybe that's more important. You know what? Like you can do a cost benefit analysis and sort of have the data in front of you. And and car shopping is interesting, too, because there is some, you know, kind of dark arts to that of just the negotiation piece. And like, I don't even fully understand that. But like, you know, as I was saying with my wife's procedure, like we get a bill a year later and I call them and I'm like, I, I thought we were good. What, what is this? Oh, well, that's the facilities charge. And then, you know, if you, if you dispute it, well, we'll knock 50% off. And you're like, well, where did that come from? Like, just the, the fact that you can haggle and, you know, you talk about choice. Like, how do you even begin to, your audience must ask these questions all the time, right? Like, how do you figure out just what's the most cost effective? What's the best solution for your situation? And couple that with you're going through a crisis at the same time, right? Like, usually it's not something that's long term. It's like, oh, shit, I got to get surgery tomorrow. How do I do it? You're talking about competing dissonance or, or, or uh, like a dual cacophony happening at the same time. Yeah. So not only are you caught off guard with how do I become rational and make decisions? You're also like fucked up in the head because everything goes Charlie Brown teacher. Right. So, again, it goes back to, you know, you're shopping for a car, a fridge. There's no consumer reports for chemotherapy, right? right? <laughs> That's a weird thing to think about. You know, again, no one wakes up one day and says, I can't wait to go in that immunotherapy one day. I'm going to look at it now. No one anticipates having to shop in that store. And another factor that makes it even more challenging is that you're not the customer. The customer is the doctor mm. and the health system. You just happen to be like this oily discharge in the wake of their transactions. I'm not sure I follow you on that. The entire system is about reimbursements and getting paid for drugs and right. services. Yeah. So the insurance companies want to make sure that they get paid yep. by premiums and that the doctors get paid and bill back to the premiums so the hospitals and the health centers get to bill Medicare or Medicaid gotcha. if you're of that age and on that platform. It's not in their interest to give you something cheap when they can give you something expensive and bill more money for it. Right. Yeah. But at the sense. end of the day, the doctors and the hospitals and the health system and the prescribers, they're the end user of industry. Hmm. You are a byproduct. Yeah. As you look at other systems around the world, like do, do they make more sense than what we have here in America? And do you ever imagine us moving to a system like, you know, socialized medicine of some kind or, you know, something like you'd see in, in, you know, Western Europe or something like that. So the trade secret that most people don't understand is that the reason those companies can have, I'm sorry, the reason those countries can have socialized medicine is that they buy all the shifts in the United States at cost mm. and they can afford to subsidize their citizens with affordable care, regardless of who they are. If you're a citizen, you get shipped for free. Yeah. Only in America do they charge rate and and that's just a function of, of how the system has been set up effectively. Yeah. I mean, they negotiate with governments around the world to sell them the drugs and the, the governments figure out what's best for them based on their population science and their health trends. And that's fine. But here in the States, they don't, we don't, we sell to us. We don't sell to other countries. Yeah. We're the ones that are buying our own shit so we can make the price of whatever we want. It's uh, it's maddening trying to just navigate this and make sense of it. How do you break it down for people? Just, uh, I guess, the big umbrella of sort of, you know, somebody gets a, a, a terrible diagnosis. They're, they're diagnosed with cancer and, you know, like the uh, 
like the diagnosis you had. They, they said they've got six months to live. How do you help people make sense of that? There's no one answer to that. And everyone is completely individualized based on their own individual circumstances. There's no cookie cutter yeah, for this. Of course. Unless you tend to go to the geriatric population with lung, breast, colon, and prostate. Yep. Those are known knowns because that's, you don't have to worry about insurance. There's Medicaid. You don't have to worry about this. Everything's taken care of. You're retired. It gets more complicated when you are an employed citizen of this country under the age of 60, where navigation is very different. And you you have kids, you have siblings, you have a life, you have a job. You're not dealing, I'm not discarding the geriatric boomer population of the greatest generation. They were in a very different, more comfort-driven navigation platform because of government help and Medicare. So what do you tell somebody when they have something bad happen to them when they're 70 is very different than when they're 18 right. or when they're 33. And at, it really does come down to what is the intervention that makes it sense for them to know, A, this sucks, we're here for you. B, we're sorry you're here, and here's how we can help. And C, here's who we think you can trust or here, you, here is who you think you can trust to make the right decision for you and only you. It's in science with the N of one, it's unique. It's not cookie cutter for anyone else except that one person. So this is where like the nonprofit sweep in and Dr. Google sweeps in and WebMD sweeps in. Everyone wants to be in that shit happens window right. or the, I call the oh shit window, like between something bad happened and something's going to start because something bad happened. You know, you have two weeks, two months, whatever it is in this shit happens window. Everyone wants to be in that moment to tell you what to do because they can make money off of it right. unless they're a nonprofit organization. There is no reason or rhyme to the oh shit window economy strategy and everything happens very differently. Hmm. I want to ask you about uh, Offscript Media a little more. You talked about just sort of you know, starting this company effectively, you know, it's been just a couple of months, right? I mean, sort of most of the development has been sort of through this quarantine period, right? Yeah, we had the idea for it in December and moved into this office in January. And within six weeks, COVID hit and it was just me here every day for months and months and months. Wow. I've heard you compare it to sort of you wanting it to do for the patient advocacy space, what Crooked Media has done sort of in the political space and sort of having this you know, big umbrella brand that can support, you know, several different podcasts and different voices and things and, and different perspectives on the issues. I'm just curious sort of where you guys are now, I guess, in terms of the types of shows you have and sort of where you imagine that going in, you know, the next, in the short term, I guess, you know, the next year or two. I mean, Crooked's a good analogy because they built from one show an entire network of shows, but right. they're ad dependent. And I think that's the, and they're investor backed. So, you don't want to be ad dependent as a company and similar to how nonprofits don't want to be donor dependent, especially when the economy crashes during COVID, you have to go to business. Right. So I wanted to start a media company that would be dependent on clients. And we happen to be a Gimlet like network of podcasts. So we have four shows on the network. We're incubating, curating, and possibly acquiring four more within the next four months Wow! to grow. Uh, there are people that have podcasts that would just want to join the network because we know what we're doing. Right. And then there are great talents out there that I'm telling them, don't start your own podcast. We'll build it with you. 
But also what's unique is that I'm turning my show into the daily show model and creating correspondence yep. like Hydra Buds. And if they do well, we'll spend them out to their own show and litmus test it instead of wasting our time investing in their own show right. out of the gate. Yeah, that's um, brilliant. We also build podcast networks for companies. We consult and advise nonprofits on whether podcasts like a farmer are podcasts right for you. Ask Offscript Media. <laughs> like that's you know, it's kind of funny that way. Yeah. But, you know, the network itself is one piece of statement of the content we're curating and putting it out there as a community of podcasts. But the business of Offscript Media is to create original content for clients that matters downstream to patients and advocates. And my show is just a fun show because I get to talk to who I want. Right. But there is a missed opportunity to consider the following posit. When bad things happen to good people, no one says, is there a podcast for this? That's <laughs> right. what we want to be. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, I I want to know sort of too. I guess what, the the advantage of of sort of banding together and having this as as a podcast network. Like I feel like especially during this time, I'm clearly guilty of it. But <laughs> there are a lot of other shows too that you know. There's just this this plethora of of new podcasts launching all the time, and I, I guess I just wonder, you know, how do you how do you differentiate yourself? How do you stand out from the noise? How do you how do you rise to the top in that environment? So I don't think it's necessary to think that way. You know, uh, you don't need to be at the top to be impactful and profitable. Mm. You need to be direct and purpose driven yep. and define what success means to you. That sounds like a cat poster, but <laughs> it's kind of how I just wanted to answer the question. I don't need to be yeah. Dak Shepard. I don't need to be. Bill Nye podcast. I don't need to be smartless with celebrities. I need to be me. Yep. And I'm my own unfair advantage coming to this from the nonprofit space as a, you know, kind of a can celebrity guy. And I think that that's why we've been very successful out of the gate through the lens of what I think success means to us. Yep. Do I have a hundred thousand listens per show? No. Do I need it? No. What are we doing? We're having fun. And we're making a difference and we're impacting patients and creating narratives and giving voice and raising tides and rising ships and all that stuff. You know, we're metaphoring ourselves to death, as I just <laughs> said in that sentence before. But how we perceive where we want to be. Yes. Do we want to aspire to be, you know, uh, Spotify for healthcare? Sure. I think that's a fantastic concept for an exit plan. Yeah. But there's so much content to be curated and published thoughtfully and measured. That's another thing that no one really talks about in any media. How do you measure what you're doing actually helps? Right. You know, you can only have so many iTunes reviews. Well, and, and I guess that's a question, too, is sort of defining that success or quantifying that success. You know, as you say, it's it's not going to be the same for everybody and just figuring out, you know, what, what, you know, how many download, I guess it's just, it's dependent on who you're working with. Right. And like your advertisers and things like, does, does this number help me cover my costs or allow me to be profitable? Well, that's, I'll that's your success, noodle on right? this. Yeah. Here, here's a, here's an idea that's very antithetical to media ROI. And it, it flies in the face of quantitative value. Everyone's like, how many this, how many that, how many ears, how many eyes, how, how many people smell this shit. And when you go qualitative, you can measure it. And if there's only 2,000 people a year that get this rare disease and you make a show for them yep. and that show improves their quality of life in a way that you can measure against an IRB study with a psycho psychosocial researcher, 
and you know that the content makes those 2,000 people's lives better, you don't give a shit about the rest of the world. You've done something for those 2,000 people. Yeah. That's niche qualitative content. You could say direct to consumer, but there's 2,000 of them. Right. And that's all they need is one show to help them identify with themselves. I, I, I get it, I guess, from a from a philanthropic standpoint and, you know, but from a profitability standpoint, even just reaching that 2,000, do, does that let you keep the lights on at the end of the day? Yeah, because those shows are underwritten by the companies that make the drugs that keep those 2,000 people alive. Gotcha. Okay. And and that was sort of the other question I had for you and just sort of, you know, partnering with organizations. You know, I, I've done branded content in the past in, in other jobs and things, and it feels like such a slippery slope and that, like, if you can find the right partner and you can find the right messaging that works for your audience and, you know, like, that, that can be a good fit often. But it feels like there's just sort of always inherent conflict in that model where, you know, the the advertiser or the partner wants to push in a direction that maybe doesn't make sense for your group or maybe isn't consistent with the rest of your messaging. Like, I just wonder sort of what you've learned about sort of navigating that world of, of keeping a sponsor or, you know, a partner happy while still being true to, to what you want to put out in the world. Yeah, so this goes to the loophole palooza of how to navigate working with compliance. <laughs> yep. And the way I do business with my partners and the scores of companies that I, I've just worked with for, for 15 years, nothing is branded and there is zero authorship because they know that we're going to produce the content that they want those patients to listen to mm -hmm. and learn from because if they did it themselves, they'd screw it up. Mm. How do you make that pitch <laughs> to say, you know what, you want this content out there, but you guys aren't the right ones to make it? Are people oh, receptive that to that? Oh, they do. They okay. know. They know. They know. Yeah. I don't always find that to be the case. It's it's interesting. Just, you know, that's a, that's been a harder sell in my experience. But uh, Well, they're used to going to their big fancy agencies and having these highly polished things done. Right. And then they produce a podcast with some bougie doctor that doesn't speak human. <laughs> and then no one listens to it and they think it's great. Right. And they know that. And I've said that to CEOs for 15 years. Like, stop thinking you know better and let the advocates do the work. And they're and they're good with that messaging? Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, I, I want to just sort of end, I guess, on looking at the big picture and sort of I, I feel like we could be at a place in, in this country where healthcare could be changing, you know, in many different ways. I mean, the Affordable Care Act is, is up in front of the Supreme Court again in, in November. Uh, there may be uh, changes in the election that may, you know, depending on sort of where Congress goes and the presidency goes and all that could either completely change the way we're looking at healthcare or, you know, for in either direction, I guess, as you look out at the, the healthcare space over the next couple of years, what do you see as sort of, how do you navigate that minefield? Well, I think the real revolution comes when the patient is in charge of their own outcomes. And the only thing that has ever moved the needle on progress are advocates. How do you move that needle when there's such a profit motive there? For the company, you know, the entrenched interests that are there, the insurance companies, the doctors, the, the drug companies, all of it. I think like anything else that's inequitable, the citizens of the country will unite to overthrow it. <laughs> and is that uh, is that in the next two years? Is that in the next 10 years? Like how, how bad does it have to get before people are, are out there marching about it? Well, the question I always ask is who profits the most by giving people what they need? Hmm. And it's a very weird way to think about it. 
But at the end of the day, the industry doesn't yet realize it profits more by giving people what they need. And they're coming around to that hmm. very, 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 very slowly. All right, there we go. Matthew Zachary. A lot of interesting stuff in there. I know we jumped around a lot. There was healthcare, there was podcasting, there was business. We covered a lot of ground, but uh, I was interested in it. And I hope you guys walked away with something. Hope you learned something. Don't forget to check out Matthew's podcast, Out of Patience, part of Offscript Media. And uh, as he said, they're growing all the time. So it's going to be some more shows coming, it sounds like. And uh, it's a fun time to be in the podcast game for sure. We're all just trying to figure it out. And uh, it was great being able to catch up with Matthew and uh, figure that all out. I have new shows every Monday and Thursday. So please come back for more. Hit that subscribe button. And I am at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Leave me some notes over there. We're coming out of the wire, guys. Make sure you register. Make sure you vote. Stay safe.